Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books and Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Sherry Thomas about the latest of her Lady Sherlock novels, Miss Moriarty, I presume. It's no secret that Sherlock Holmes is one of the publishing industry's darlings at the moment. But Sherry Thomas has put her own spin on this venerated character with delightful results. As suggested by the series title, her main character is not the tall, thin Victorian gentleman Sherlock Holmes, but one Charlotte Holmes, a daughter of impoverished nobility, who discovers, with a little help from Mrs. John Watson and her loyal friend, Lord Ingram Ashburton, her true calling as a detective. February 1887. Alain de Lacy sprang up from his chair. What did you say? He had not been to Lacy very long. At his immense mahogany desk, flanked by 18th-century oil portraits, sometimes he felt as if he had been born into the household of a manufacturer wealthy enough to buy a viscount for a son-in-law. And on most days, the sight of his secretary at the door, relaying the latest news with deference, only reinforced the impression that he had succeeded beyond his wildest dreams. Today, however, he broke into a sweat. Mr. Baxter is coming to Britain, sir, repeated his secretary, and he wants you to make an appointment for him to call on Sherlock Holmes. So he'd heard correctly the first time. But didn't Mr. Baxter usually visit Britain in summer? It was only February. And Sherlock Holmes, or Charlotte Holmes, rather, had been under surveillance since Christmas. If anything, de Lacy would have thought that Mr. Baxter wished to get rid of the woman, not to undertake a formal visit. And now, please join me in welcoming Sherry Thomas. Hi, Sherry. Thank you for agreeing to talk with me today. Hi, Carolyn. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. You have an interesting history, uh, one that begins in, I'm probably going to blow this pronunciation, Qingdao, uh, China. That is correct. You pronounced it perfectly fine. Yes. Great. In Um, the lovely coastal city of Qingdao, China. So how did you get from there to Austin, Texas? Oh, well, it's a, a 
it's actually both complicated and fairly simple. The simpler version is just that my mother was a student uh, at LSU, uh, Louisiana State University, in the 80s. And uh, um, I was living with my grandparents, and uh, my grandmother passed away. So uh, my mother decided to bring my grandfather and me here uh, so she could look after us because grandfather was more the old-fashioned gentleman. I, you could always see him doing various things around the house, but he doesn't actually know how to cook. And uh, this was, you know, a bunch of years ago before you could order food in so easily and everybody did their own cooking. Um, so my uh, mother thought it was best for us to come here to stay with her. My grandfather later went back to China, but I was still a minor. So I just kept staying with her. And later she found a job here. So we stayed um, after she graduated. Uh, so that's, that's a simpler version of the story. <laughs> I'm always impressed by people who write fiction in a language that they acquired later in life. Uh, what made you decide to become a novelist? Uh, it's a funny story, actually. Um, I read a, I started out in historical romance and, uh, Part of the reason is because as a teenager learning the English language, I had actually read a lot of historical romance. It just, it, 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 it was there available um, in all the, um, like the Kmart, Walmart, if you go, you can see them in the book, uh, book aisle and it was there at the university bookstore. So it was just in, in the library. So it was just easily available. And, um, and my story started in a single afternoon Really, um, I was a very young stay-at-home mom uh, at 23, and, uh, and one day I went to the library, got a uh, historical romance by an author I had enjoyed very much as a teenager. But that book, that particular book that I got that day did not agree with me at all. Like, it disagreed with me so violently, in fact, that normally if I don't like a book, I just set aside. That book disagreed with me so violently that by the time like I set it aside and uh, I was very angry that uh, I have spent my whole my entire free time for that day because I was a stay-at-home mom I just had a very little free time during my son's nap time I was very angry that I spent my whole free time on the book and the book did not give me any pleasure in return so um so in the single afternoon by the time by the time my husband came back I was telling him hey you know I think I'm gonna write the book on my own. I think I'm going to write a historical romance. I'm going to, I mean, I'm going to figure out how to do it. It can't be, it can't be that hard, can it? And um, so it was like one of those famous last words. And it took me eight years, in fact, to figure out how to write one properly and, um, and, uh, and get published. Uh, and back, back in the days when uh, New York was pretty much, the traditional publishing was pretty much the only, only way to go. So um, I was... Um, yeah, it took me eight years of writing to get my first contract, and then I wrote um, nine historical um, romances before I ran out of ideas. And uh, I happened was also very interested in writing a Sherlock Holmes adaptation, and that's how I switched over to historical mysteries instead. Great. So that leads right into my next question. Where did the idea of Charlotte Holmes as the subject of the series come from? Oh, well, it was um, one of my favorite. Um, I, I, am, I am sort of a heretic in that uh, as much as I enjoy the original canon of Sherlock Holmes stories, I have always 
song that I enjoyed the, the pastiche more. Uh, even from the very beginning, I, I read the 7% Solution, which was like an um, adaptation, which was a, a novel that was written in the 80s about uh, Sherlock Holmes and his uh, um, drug addiction and how when he was, when he was gone from Reichenbach Falls, he was actually in rehab. Or at least I think that's what it was about. Um, I read that in the 80s, around the same time I first read um, the original Sherlock Holmes stories. So even then, I was like, oh, wow, this is a very interesting take on, uh, on the character. Um, so in the, um, the mid-aughts, I think, when I first read um, um, Laurie R. King's uh, Mary Russell and Sherlock Holmes book, uh, the first book's name is uh, The Beekeeper's Apprentice. Um, so when I first read that book, I was blown away. Um, in that book... Um, Miss, Mrs. King introduced a uh, a uh, a young female character who is like basically the exact counterpart to Sherlock Holmes, and they would at first uh, be kind of like the master apprentice kind of relationship, and later they will fall in love and get married. Um, and so she has a whole series. And when I read that first book, I was was the first time I ever thought to myself, "Oh, I want to write a Sherlock Holmes adaptation too." It's like so cool. Uh, but it, the idea was just in the back of my head, and I didn't do anything with it because I had just got a um, a romance contract, and uh, I was going to grad school at the same time, so there was no time for anything else. Uh, I also had never written a mystery and thought I didn't know whether I could do it, um, so it was also set aside. Um, and then some time passed, and uh, and I also wrote a young adult fantasy trilogy, Um and the second book in the trilogy happens to be a mystery when all was said and done. So by the time BBC Sherlock rode around, uh, and I don't know whether you've ever uh, seen BBC Sherlock in the first season, but it was fantastic. There was so much creative energy, which is like such flair in the storytelling. Um, and, and I, again, it came to me, oh, I really want to do this on my own. But this time I was serious. And I thought, okay, so what should I do exactly to bring something new to this story? Um, uh, Laurie R. King already gave Sherlock Holmes an equal female partner. Uh, uh, BBC Sherlock brought Sherlock to the 21st century and used the, you know, the latest war in Afghanistan. And um, over on CBS, uh, Elementary had a female Watson. So I thought, really, the only thing left to do was to have a female Sherlock Holmes. Um, and, uh, and at first I, th- I, th- I thought it was going to be a YA series. I pitched to my YA publisher and they said, uh, uh, detective fiction doesn't sell very well in uh, YA. So then I turned around to my adult publisher and say, Hey, would you like this? Uh, and they say, sure. <laughs> so that's how it came to be. I'm with you, actually. I love the uh, later versions. I mean, I've tried several times to read the canon of Sherlock Holmes and I never really get caught up in it. But I love Laurie R. King's series, uh, just as I love your series, uh, because there's so much more emotional depth to them, frankly. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like, I feel like, you know, writers of the 20th and 21st century, I think uh, they just do better at writing characters. I mean, they're no less good at writing devious plots, but they just are better at writing characters. Tell us a bit about Charlotte's background as sketched out in a study in Scarlet Women. Right. So um, Sherlock Holmes, original Sherlock Holmes, um, is actually of extremely sketchy background. Basically, everything 
the fandom thinks it knows about um, Sherlock Holmes, thinks that uh, that's not what Watson's observations um, are like deduced, like uh, when was he born uh, or like what kind of family background he came from and so on and so forth. Um, so, so, but the general consensus is that he came from either the upper gentry or the minor aristocracy uh, because he seems to have independent wealth of some kind in that uh, he does not uh, need to work. Uh, he, he can just shoot up on his 7% solution of cocaine whenever he's bored um, and only takes the case that really, um, really appeal to him. And, um, and so I thought uh, well, the, the, the drug use was probably, you know, I didn't really want to do that. Um, but I, I did take that background of, you know, either upper gentry um, or uh, lower aristocracy. And I thought uh, I will make, uh, make, uh, make her father a baronet, which is like the lowest kind of like sort of sir you can have. Um, and, and then, um, and then it became a matter of, okay, besides this, uh, what is she going to be like? At first, when I wrote, like, you know, just a couple of pages to test out the waters, I had, uh, I had Charlotte be kind of an exact, um, exact same physically as, uh, as Sherlock Holmes. Like, maybe I didn't describe the aquiline nose, but, you know, she was thin, she was kind of like uh, uh, very severely dressed and, uh, and all that. And I just wrote a couple of pages to this and I thought, this is not fun. <laughs> so then I just turned her into the exact opposite. I turned her into this, um, you know, pleasantly plump young girl who is blonde and with a beautiful round face and, uh, and uh, this kind of lovely, innocent looking eyes whom nobody will ever suspect. And I gave her like, you know, a very hourglass figure so that nobody first looking at her will be thinking, wow, brain. Um, and uh, and then and then the thing was, she may look like that, but she still has the mind and the temperament of a Sherlock Holmes. And then we have to deal with okay, so what is a woman with a mind and a temperament like that going to do in Victorian England when it will be totally frowned upon for a woman? Yes, I agree. That's really the fun of it is is watching this young woman who looks absolutely nothing like Sherlock Holmes and yet who thinks like Sherlock Holmes. Uh, and of course, in Victorian England, that's just mind blowing for most of the, the men that she comes across. They... So... And, and she, she also has that very aloof temperament, right? Ra- rather, uh, I mean, you, when, you, when you get into uh, the Lady Sherlock series, you find out that she there's a great deal of humanity to Charlotte, but she is she is blunt and she says, you know, those things that make people go, what? Yeah. Yes. And she doesn't react um, emotionally to a lot of things. I mean, now, today we will probably call her a little autistic, but that's that's unfair um, in, in the sense that she does feel more deeply than she lets on. But she doesn't react to the things that other people in her environment right. she, react she, to. She, exactly. She has she doesn't have much reaction and uh, to to a lot of things, which is which is also the fun of it when everybody else around her is like all like, <laughs> all like shocked by stuff and she just continues to like eat her cake and <laughs> drink her tea. So this contrast is what helps Charlotte carry off her deception. But how does she convince the world that Sherlock Holmes exists? Well, I think uh, part of it will be her brilliance. Uh, like, 
I think, oh, you mean in the book, how, how she does it. Um, in the book, how, how they do it is they, they, give a, they give Sherlock Holmes a unnamed but debilitating disease that, uh, so that he cannot meet with people in person. And uh, he can also has trouble communicating normally and, and so that his brilliance requires a medium, kind of like an oracle in the form of his sister, Miss Holmes, who, um, who will meet his uh, clients for him and then, um, and then um, take their problems to him and then interpret what he says so she can tell them what to do. And also she will do the legwork for him to go out and see the, you know, what the client needs her to see if, if that is the case. And, uh, and so that is, that is their basic ruse. And in, in, in the office, in the office on Upper Baker Street, because uh, the, number, uh, the number that was given for the fictional Sherlock Holmes uh, address actually did not exist. Um, that part of Baker Street used to be called Upper Baker Street. So in, in Upper Baker Street, where they have their, um, their office, um, there's like a room to the side, a bedroom set up, uh, set up as if there's a convalescent, there's a, there's a, there's a person, patient in there who has to use a lot of tincture and all that has to be looked after. Uh, and, but, but the clients don't get to see it. Just that occasionally Charlotte slips in ostensibly to consult with this non-existent brother. So I'm deliberately not asking you questions about the earlier novels' um, plots because they have these wonderfully fiendishly d- difficult uh, mysteries, but very satisfying. And um, so I'm asking you about characters, and then we will talk a little bit about the current novel, which is number six. Um, let's talk a bit about Lord Ingram Ashburton, who has a long and complex relationship with Charlotte. Uh, what can you tell us about him without giving away spoilers? Without giving away spoilers? Um, well, when, when, when people ask me, well, do you, like Sherlock Holmes has the woman, do you have you know, an equivalent, and I always um, tell them, um, hey, uh, Lord Ingram's initials are actually IA. Uh, oh, those I are, have noticed uh, that. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> yes, those are, those are Irene Adler's initials, but I did not want him to be kind of like, you know, like a, like a passing comet, a one brilliant flash uh, in the sky, and, you know, there he's been, then never mentioned again. Um, I kind of wanted to explore a little bit what kind of relationship might be possible for a woman with like Charlotte Holmes, um, with, with Sherlock Holmes uh, temperament and abilities. Like what kind, of, what kind of men would she, you know, go for and what kind of men would go for her? Um, and and, and would, what kind of two people with such a relationship not only be like, you know, interesting and complicated right uh, in a book, but also make readers go, that might actually work. We, like, we can see those two people actually um, make that relationship work. Um, so Lord Ingram is a, um, Charlotte comes from very minor aristocracy, but Lord Ingram, uh, in the story comes from major aristocracy. His father is a duke. But the twist in that is he is well known not to be his father's uh, biological son, like he was, he was the result of his mother's affair with a uh, very wealthy Jewish banker. Um, so I, I was kind of thinking in my head that that he's actually a um, 
a Rothschild or something like that. <laughs> um, so that kind of, uh, you know, things like that is, is sort of accepted uh, and almost expected in, uh, in Victorian England, which is why they always insist on the heir and the spare first. Um, and then the lady is kind of free to uh, have, uh, you know, to live life as, uh, as she wished and just be discreet about it. And uh, the, the gentleman, the, 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 the husband who may be like producing his own Bibles elsewhere will also look away discreetly. Um, in fact, uh, during Victorian times, I, I think I read a piece of research um, that says something like it, it, was, it was an advice given by an a older lady to a younger, younger woman making her debut in London. And the advice is never comment on likeness, uh, basically never comment on physical resemblance of the people you meet, because you actually don't know who they're descendants of exactly, really, <laughs> beneath all this respectability. Um, so, so Lord Ingram has that, but it, it is kind of, a, you know, it does make him like a little bit sort of, uh, how to say it, it does make him yearn, yearn for more respectability because there's this, you know, slight thing to his, um, to his parentage. Um, and so that's, the way I set it up is like Charlotte is basically has always been like before she was actively before she became a cast out in, in book one she becomes a um, social outcast uh, so that's not a huge secret before she even before she became an outcast she's kind of like very does not cleave very tightly to society's rules she wants to do what she wants to do and uh, and whereas he is very mindful of all the rules and of you know, what is required of him, of what he needs to like kind of uh, have a place for himself uh, in a hierarchy. And so at the beginning of the book, uh, of the series, he was married. And that is the most obvious obstacle between him and Charlotte. But if you dig down a little deeper, it's much more that, you know, she is quite, you know, she doesn't have to be militantly anti-establishment. She's almost worse. She's like enthusiastically anti-establishment. And he was very, not exactly pro-establishment, but he wanted his place in this world that's currently existing. And so, so there exists this tension, not only a sexual tension of, um, of attraction that cannot, be, um, that cannot be consummated, but also this clash of worldviews. Um, and so that was how it was set up for his character. So of course he would then go on this journey, his own journey, um, and uh, kind of, you know, for readers who don't know, I don't want to spoil it, but he does go on a journey. <laughs> and then he he might have gone on the biggest journey in this whole, uh, in this, uh, even though this is Charlotte's book, Charlotte doesn't change too much. Like Sherlock Holmes doesn't change too much. The people who actually change a lot are actually are some of the men in this uh, in the mansion in this in the series. <laughs> yes, you're right. That That is quite a difference. Um, uh, Charlotte also, uh, you know, it wouldn't be fitting to have a female Holmes without a female Watson. And that was another one of the fun things was watching how you managed to make that happen. Um, so do tell us about Mrs. John Watson and um, how Charlotte meets her. Mrs. Watson, Mrs. Watson is actually uh, uh, an old friend of uh, uh, Lord Ingram. She used to be Lord Ingram's father's mistress after his mother had passed away. So I think that's how they, uh, that's how they knew each other. That's how, you know, uh, she was very much in his life uh, for, for some time. Um, uh, they, 
this spoils the first book a little bit. So they don't meet exactly as accidentally as Charlotte supposes, but because after Charlotte became an outcast, Lord Ingram wants uh, Mrs. Watson to kind of like help keep an eye on her to like, you know, to help her if possible. But when Mrs. Watson sees what Charlotte is capable of, the kind of deduction she does, and then she's like, oh, we need to make use of this. And you, we need to make money from this. So she is. She was at the beginning the uh, the uh, financial, both the financial backing and the uh, financial brains behind the operation. Um, I I first decided that I would have a female Watson because it was kind of difficult to have a man and a woman, a married man and woman, live together in Victorian times without there being all kinds of other concerns, like what kind of exact relationship they are and this and that. So when I first decided to make Mrs. Watson a woman, it was more like convenience or any, over anything else. But as the series progresses, I've, I've just been so glad of this initial decision because Mrs. Watson turns out to be a lot of readers' favorite character in the sense that everybody wishes they had a Mrs. Watson. She has done so much in life and she has so much experience, but she has so much compassion and like um, and love of people and just lots of wisdom. Um, and it's so kind and so helpful. So you you really wish, you know, you had a, a Mrs. Watson in your corner to help you through things. Yes, that's absolutely true. Yes, she's a wonderful character in that way. I, there are a lot of other characters that we could get to, and we'll come back to them if we have time. But I want to make sure that we get to talk a little bit about the current book. So I'm going to skip over Livia and the Treadles, who are also important. And there are Lord Ingram's brothers, too, who sort of are collectively Mycroft, which is very interesting. But the um, uh, in this sixth book, uh, well, one of the things that I noticed is that Moriarty uh, appears much earlier in your series and plays a larger role than, at least in my impression, of the, the Conan Doyle canon. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about that and um, why he is there. as an, He's really an ongoing character um, in, this, in the role of antagonist. Right. Um, for people who are well-versed in the original canon, they will know that Moriarty actually plays very little role like even though even though uh conan doyle uh to uh kind of like uh uh in order to get rid of sherlock holmes for a while he killed sherlock holmes uh, at reichenbach falls uh in order to get rid of him he mentioned like there's sherlock holmes has this arch enemy but really um really moriarty has very little role to play in in the original canon but i think because of because Arthur Conodor did mention that, you know, he's kind of an arch enemy, great criminal mastermind and whatnot. Um, in all the subsequent major adaptations, um, Moriarty has had uh, a role to play. Um, I think uh, in BBC, Sherlock is, uh, has had a major Moriarty uh, through line in, uh, in the first couple of seasons. And I always thought... Um, that you know Moriarty was a great character for that series, and I always felt that they got rid of Moriarty far too early. Um, and I thought the the kind of the series kind of flung. There's still one great episode in in season three, but otherwise the the, the series kind of floundered after Moriarty's departure. Um, so so because because Moriarty and Sherlock Holmes 
are such kind of like um, great arch enemies, not necessarily in the original canon, but in popular perception of these um, of of the Sherlock Holmes uh, mystique. Um, I decided yes, Moriarty will play a major role, but I did not want to bring him. Um, I certainly don't want to get get rid of him too early. In fact, I didn't even want to bring him on page too early. Uh, so book six was when I was like thinking, okay, really, he needs to come on page now and the actual character instead of just someone only, you know, just someone lurking in the shadows in the background. So, so that's, that was how this this book came along. But I also didn't want him to come in, a, um, in the role of antagonist right away. I was like, oh, it would be much more interesting, for example, if he came as a client who wanted Sherlock Holmes' help. And that was the conceit of Miss Moriarty. I presume that, uh, that Moriarty has some problems on his own, that he, his daughter seems to be missing, and he wants um, a discreet, someone discreet to help find her, which would be Sherlock Holmes slash Charlotte Holmes. Exactly. And uh, why does Charlotte accept this commission? Because her initial reaction to Moriarty uh, when he arrives in her office is, is quite strong and um, a bit frightening. Right, right. She really does not want to. But, you know, the way, the way it is written is like they did not think they had a choice. They did not think that they could actually turn Moriarty down and they wanted to kind of like play along. They want to, they still want to give Moriarty the impression because Charlotte has done some things, not intentionally, but she has done some things that if Moriarty only knew what she did, you know, he would totally be like coming after her. So with that, with that in mind, they want to give the impression that they are very cooperative, that they have nothing to hide. So I think that's part of the reason why they accepted uh, him in the end. And uh, it's almost as much self-preservation as anything else. I wanted to mention in this context that it, although people can pick up the series anywhere and really enjoy it because each book stands on its own, uh, this is definitely a series that I would recommend that our listeners read from beginning to end because the characters do develop over time, their relationships develop over time. And if you do start with book six, then you're going to know a lot of things in advance that it's more fun to discover when you're beginning at the beginning. Right, right, very much so. This is kind of like uh, uh, you don't you don't want to start like like watching Game of Thrones in season three, <laughs> right? <laughs> so it, because because the story is, um, I think as in in the past, detective stories have kind of been very episodic. So the detective remains the same, everybody else remains the same. It's just that they go into different situations. But I think in the age of peak TV, when everything is like close so much closely related and there's like this overarching storyline um i think starting with uh, veronica mars um so so my my series is kind of like that each each story is an installment but it starts with this uh, it has this big overarching storyline um that uh that would be kind of you know book six would spoil like at least a couple of books in the previous, <laughs> in the previous, uh, um, in uh, that came before it, yeah. 
Exactly. So this particular venture takes uh, Charlotte to something called the Garden of Hermopolis. Um, we're going to come back and talk about Miss Baxter. But um, tell us a little bit about the garden. Uh, what is it and what inspires you to create it for this book? Uh, the Garden of Hermopolis uh, is, um, is a community of kind of like occult practitioners. Um, it's in the Victorian era, one of the biggest uh, things going on was the, um, they, they were very much into the occult, like uh, people have seances or like Tuesday evening entertainment and things like that. And I, and uh, Arthur Conan Doyle himself um, was a ardent believer in the existence of fairies. Um, and, uh, and yet I thought, hmm, uh, up to, until this point in the series, I've not dealt at all with the uh, occult. I thought it was about time, so that was one thing, um, and uh, and so so I kind of looked around and I picked hermeticism, which is not so much. Yeah, it's both kind of occult and kind of pagan in the sense that it was it's like a pre-existing uh, school of philosophy um, that goes back a long time, and uh, and the name of um, name of its founder often used to come up in. Um, in like medieval alchemical texts. So, um, so I thought it would be kind of interesting to do something that's not exactly bonkers. It's, you know, there's like a, um, it's kind of historical. It's kind of like um, classical almost. It's just not common. So what can you tell us about Miss um, Baxter, who is the person it turns out that they're looking for as a personality primarily? Uh, she is, I don't want to say too much because the book hinges on whether they find her. But uh, but they everybody in this case was actually quite curious about Miss Baxter because uh, first of all they all want to know what kind of woman you know um, what kind of child would would Moriarty have, and they also wonder hmm, um, why would she forsake. Uh, a very comfortable life that he's provided for her to go to this like remote, um, this remote walled compound uh, on the Cornish coast where she has to live this very simple life and there's you know very little contact with the outside. Like what motivated her? What you know? <coughs> what uh, what uh, you know? What drew her there? And so there was all kinds of speculations like. Uh, you know, was it because of a man? Was it because of this and that? And Moriarty himself says it's just because, you know, she just wants to spite him. You know, she wants to do whatever he doesn't want her to do. So there's this all kinds of speculations. And so when they get there, uh, you know, they, they find other people in the community who are also like, yeah, we also really want to see her too, but we haven't seen her in ages. And so everybody is like, Everybody's a suspect because everybody in this in this community could have done away with her, or maybe altogether they could have done away with her for like for her money or whatnot. Uh, um, so, so it's just like like it's even I as a, as a writer had great fun speculating on who Miss Moriarty is, Miss <laughs> Baxter slash Miss Moriarty is. All right, let's leave it there. What would you like people to take away from the Lady, Lady Sherlock series? Uh well, I never, uh, I never have such grand ambitions about my books because I am a, um, 
reader who read for uh, as myself read for enjoyment. So my primary thing is I just want people to have enjoyed my books. I uh, well, I should, I should say I want a little more than that because I love it when a book grabs me by the throat, when a book like pulls me along instead of me having to like spend the. Uh, uh, I never want to feel conscious that I'm doing the reading, um, like like it's work or it's it's you know it's it's labor. I want I want to just be uh, you know the I want the story to to yank me by the by the collar and just pull me along for me to just be swept away and going, whoa, you know. Um, so that's really what I want most for readers, that this be an enjoyable experience for them. Um, and if on top of it, uh, it adds to their uh, understanding of the world or it makes them think a little bit about um, what has or hasn't changed in the past you know, hundred odd years, uh, then that's great. But, but primarily, I just want them to have a great time. Well, I have to say, I had a wonderful time. I read, I was going to read the first one to see if I would like the series. And then I read all five up to this. And then I had to make myself wait so that I would be close enough to the interview uh, when I read book six. And also, I, at that point, I was thinking, well, it's, I'm not going to get another one for a while, so I want to space this out. <laughs> so you definitely succeeded <laughs> there. Um, this one has Thank just you. come out. So are you already working on book seven? She said, hopefully. Yes, I am. I am working on book seven. And of course, uh, you know, running into the usual problems of, okay, this, I think that it's going to be one thing, but it's, it's, it looks like it's going to be something else and I have to adapt and throw away some of what I've written and start from the beginning and like see what I can salvage and so on and so forth. <laughs> but but it, it, always, it always works like that. So it's, it's not, not a huge problem. Well, we wish you all success and thank you so much for taking a, an hour out of your day to speak with us today. Oh, it is my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Sherry Thomas about Miss Moriarty, I presume, the sixth in her Lady Sherlock series. Find out more about her at www.sherrythomas.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histvic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.